Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Taomo Zhou, who's Assistant Professor in the School of Humanities at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And she'll be talking about her new book, Migration in the Time of Revolution, China, Indonesia, and the Cold War, which was published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. Stories of China's opening up to the world in the late 20th and early 21st centuries at times seem to suggest that the country was completely closed before this, as though the revolutionary period from the 1940s onwards was simply one of domestic turmoil and introversion. Of course, though, this is very far from the truth, for on multiple levels this period was as international as any other in China's recent past, something seen both on the official level in the formal internationalism of socialist and third world solidarity and in more everyday ways in the activities of the vast population of more or less Chinese people living beyond the boundaries of what we now call China. Both of these vectors played into the nascent PRC's engagement with the wider world, and these are explored in fascinating depth in Taomo Zhou's Migration in the Time of Revolution, which focuses in particular on the overseas Chinese population in Indonesia and what their 20th century experiences tell us about broader regional and global affairs during the Cold War. Drawing in a vast range of material derived from archival work and, perhaps most intriguingly, on-the-ground fieldwork, this book presents a rich account of the Indonesian-Chinese population's entanglements in everything from Chinese civil war, Beijing-Taipei rivalries after 1949, Indonesian independence, Cold War alliance building, and the Cultural Revolution, to name just a few. What results is a book that treads new ground in multiple ways, shedding light on a key bottom-up angle to 20th century geopolitics in Asia and beyond, and revealing, I have to say, some absolutely fascinating accounts of those who returned to China after 1949 and how they fared in the young socialist state. But to talk about all of these things and how they expand our understanding of macro-level events at ground level, uh, I'll say Tao Mo Zhou, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for the generous introduction. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I'm greatly looking forward to talking about this uh, very cool book. Um, but before we do, uh, perhaps I'll begin by asking you how it was that you became interested in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, you're based yourself in Singapore, uh, and this particularly interesting tale of migration and, and the like. Right. So um, when I was doing research for this book, I was frequently asked uh, whether, you know, I myself was Chinese Indonesian. Um, Actually, I was born in Harbin, the bustling Sino-Russian entry port, which was vividly featured in your own book, The Mirrorlands. And my family moved all the way south to Shenzhen in the early 1990s. So Um, Shenzhen probably became known as the Silicon Valley of China and is bordering Hong Kong. And I studied for my undergrad at Peking University. 
Um, I spent a year at Waseda as an exchange student in Tokyo, and later um, for my master's, I was at the London School of Economics. And later I pursued my PhD at Cornell. And now, as you mentioned, I'm working in Singapore. So I guess throughout these journeys, I'm always curious about two things on a micro level. Um, I'm always fascinated about international relations or politics and the spread of ideology, particularly communism. And secondly, um, on the, I'm curious about the human stories, and particularly the movement and mobility of people, uh, especially how experiences of migrants, um, you know, whether their assimilation, discrimination, uh, they experience change the way they perceive themselves or are perceived by others. So in other words, although I'm not Chinese Indonesian myself, but the mirroring experience to quote to you again, of like seeing my own Chinese identity shift and uh, change over times in different social contexts, in different geopolitical background, kind of inspire this project. Mm. Very interesting. And and so uh, how did the actual book itself kind of come about as a project? Right. So um, I would say I started probably in the wrong way. Um, I understand like for most graduate students, like they probably start with a broad thematical interest um, in a particular field or in a particular region. Uh, but for me, um, it just happens that I, I hit the jackpot <laughs> in the beginning. So um, in between 2006 and 2007, uh, I think it's between 2006 and around 2012, the Chinese Foreign Ministry Archives opened up. And uh, it was during that time I was in Beijing and uh, one of my professors at Peking University mentioned to me like you know, Indonesian Communist Party was actually the largest non-ruling Communist Party during the Cold War. And we don't know much about the relation between Beijing and um, its Indonesian, com- Indonesian comrades. So um, I took the chance and went into the Chinese Foreign Ministry Archive. So that was, as you know from reading the book, that's the bulk of the governmental documents used in the book. So I have this um, whole treasure trove of material, and I spent basically six years of my PhD trying to figure out how to make sense of it and how to make the story relevant to the broader academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think you do that very successfully and uh, add in all kinds of, you know, more, I guess, uh, personal and um, on-the-ground insights too, um, which we'll have a chance to uh, to talk about, I think, as we get into the book. Um, but um, I guess uh, it leads us quite well into the introduction you're having just mentioned, um, this intriguing fact that uh, the Indonesian Communist Party was the biggest non-ruling one during the Cold War and so on. Um, I think because the Southeast Asian component to this book takes us a little outside the immediate remit of uh, East Asian studies, um, you perhaps, if you could, uh, would you be able to give us a bit of a picture of um, who the Chinese population in Indonesia is? Um, and uh, I mean, it's a question you pose yourself in the introduction. So uh, you have established that you are not one, uh, but who who are they, the, uh, the overseas Chinese in Indonesia? Right. That's uh, a very good question. So um, here, I would say like, um, historians of Chinese migration always debate about 
the subject of their study, right? So, um, like to quote culture studies scholar like Ian An, who famously authored a book on not speaking Chinese. So this idea of Chineseness is always contested, is malleable, and kind of constantly remade and reshaped um, under different social contexts. So in the book, um, I'll, I think I'll try to emphasize the diversity, the fluidity and hybrid, hybridity of the Chinese identity. But I think here I'll just focus on three dimensions. So one is like, in ter- there are different degrees of cultural assimilation. Right, so um, those who are more assimilated, in in a sense that they use Bahasa Indonesia or Market Malay as their main language, are usually categorized as Peranakan, whereas those who tend to use Mandarin Chinese or other Chinese dialect as their main language are usually recognized as Totok or Xinke, so indicating that they are they themselves are new migrants or descendants of new migrants to Indonesia. And of course, these two categories are distinct, but not mutually exclusive, right? And, um, and the idea that, you know, that there is a racial distinction between Pribumi or so-called indigenous uh, Indonesians and the Chinese is um, somehow a colonial legacy. You can say it's an artificial creation, and it's constantly used by political actors in Indonesia for a political gain, right? So one anecdote I uh, wrote in the book is that in 1961, like the charismatic Indonesian president Sukarno, he met with Mao Zedong, the uh, Chinese chairman, and he basically took off his hat and showed his black hair to Mao and say, look, you know, you can hardly tell whether I'm indigenous or not, right? Um, maybe I have the Chinese blood. Um, so, but there is, of course, um, Sukarno is trying to charm Mao to re- diffuse any diplomatic tension, but it shows that, um, you know, some Pranakan are really highly integrated into, into local society, either through intermarriage or adaptation of local language or cultural practices. And, um, and also there is, I guess, another prominent theme in the book is that there is always this conflation of ethnicity and class. So there is this popular kind of um, understanding that all Chinese are belong to the merchant class. Uh, of course, one can admit that the merchant class uh, was and is the most dominant group, uh, but this is kind of a manifestation of the uh, Dutch colonial policy that in which the Chinese were car- uh, categorized as foreign orientals and separated uh, from the natives. Right. Uh, so Baron, uh, which probably we'll talk about later, he was the first Chinese ambassador to Indonesia. He said, like, oh, of course, in the eyes of uh, some indigenous elites, every Chinese has a shop, has a company, but um, they're only seeing like only a few big trees. And they're saying, oh, look, the whole forest is made of all these skyscraper trees or gigantic trees. So they're Chinese engaged in fishery, in agriculture. So the kind of their humble, modest backgrounds were obscured by the prominent wealth of a small group of Chinese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, you chart the kind of uh, 
shifting perception of uh, the community uh, over time uh, in, in a very uh, fascinating way, because of course, amidst great uh, political shifts in the region and in this specific relationship between China and Indonesia, these people come to be viewed very differently, as you show. Um, but I also wonder, uh, in, in perhaps some um, excessively naive kind of a question, whether you could give us a sense of uh, the recent history of Indonesia. I know that's a, a, a massive sort of subject, but you mentioned the Dutch colonial era there. Um, so what what uh, was the sort of uh, Cold War, well, post-independence and, and, and sort of Cold War um, situation in Indonesia, and specifically, how did it relate to the Chinese community there? Absolutely. So, um, I mean, I here I think I'll just recap on uh, emphasize on three key turning points. So, 1945, 1955, and then 1965. So, basically, um, the book was trying to show that in this two decade span, um, Indonesia's relationship with uh, China reflect kind of. Indonesia's own anxiety as a very diverse, uh, newly decolonized nation state. So in other words, the problems that emerged in Sino-Indonesian relations were not just foreign policy issues, right? They were kind of entangled, um, as the word you use in the introduction, or entanglement is a big theme of the book. So it's an entang- uh, entanglement with Indonesia's domestic issue of like whether it's forging national identity or its control of ethnic minorities and control of the borderlands. So basically, to just to briefly summarize, um, the geographic boundary of what today is known as Indonesia was set by the Dutch. So they came um, in early 17th century and they um, established the Dutch East Indies as one uniform, unified colony. So one can argue that um, under the Dutch, Indonesians become Became, began to conceive of themselves as one nation. And then the Japanese came in 1942, and uh, many historians saw that as a watershed moment um, as they brought in military rituals, uh, they militarized, militarized the youth, and the nationalist mo- movement uh, among like the younger generation of Indonesians gained more momentum. So in 1945, Indonesia declare its independence, uh, but it was still a daunting challenge for the nationalist leaders to instill a sense of common identity because this is, after all, a country kind of spread across the equator consistent of like 19,000 islands. So also they had to continue fighting against Dutch attempt to recolonize. Um, so this struggle is known as the Indonesian National Revolution, it ended in 1949, and the sovereignty was transferred from the Dutch to Indonesian hands in the end. So, um, and 1955, I think many of the listeners will be familiar with the Afro-Asian Conference held in Bandung. So it's a moment of glamour, um, and Indonesia really kind of uh, fashioned itself as a pioneer in the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement. Uh, so Sokarno, the charismatic host of the Afro-Asian Conference, he announced that the formerly voiceless, invisible third-world nations are now uh, very adamant in their demand for autonomy in the Cold War. And then fast forward to 1965. Uh, so that's the climax of the book. 
um, um, the September 30th movement and ensuing mass violence and regime change in Indonesia, in which uh, Sokarno was ousted by Soharto. So um, September 30th movement probably gained more visibility with the release of Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, which uh, was highly controversial but very impactful, like the act the echo of killing and the look of silence. Um, so what is the September 30th movement? Uh, John Russo, the prominent historian of modern Indonesia, he said this is the most mysterious and probably the most important event in Indonesian history. Uh, there's still ongoing debate about what actually happened. So I just briefly say what is generally agreed upon among historians. Uh, historians. So before dawn on October 1st, 1965, Indonesian army units from the presidential palace guard abducted and later killed six senior anti-communist generals. However, the next day, so hard to, so he at the time was a major general in the in- Indonesian army. Uh, he launched a very effective counterattack. So in his in the process of his rise to power, Soharto initiated a nationwide anti-communist campaign and it escalated into one of the worst mass killings of the 20th century. So um, the generally agree upon figure is that at least uh, 500,000 people were killed. So because um, the leader of the Indonesian Communist Party, I did, he was a major participant. So the Indonesian army made uh, aggressive charges um, that, you know, this is a communist coup d'etat and the Chinese Communist Party was responsible for exporting revolution abroad. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I see. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great little potted history, I think, of uh, <laughs> certainly the, the kind of national construction efforts and so on that uh, much of this book revolves around. Um, within that, and it's not necessarily at the core of the concerns of this book, but I'm just wondering, um, since what one key element of China's own uh, PRC era nation building is also the uh, treatment of minority groups, and this is obviously a very um, uh, topical issue at the moment with what's going on uh, on China's peripheries, including in, in Xinjiang. Um, but I just wonder whether uh, it, Indonesia pursued a similar policy. I mean, as you say, it crosses all of these dazzling array of different islands and different spaces. My my uh, little brother was actually recently doing a high school project uh, in geography and uh, it seemed to arrive at the problematic conclusion that Indonesia isn't a place because I think he was uh, expecting something that was a bit more glued together than, uh, I mean, I, obviously uh, I've, uh, I've debated him on the subject, um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is somewhere that has a tremendous internal diversity uh, if you take the, the borders of the state as the as the container. So how did uh, Indonesia's own domestic kind of um, ethnicity policy, if you like, and language policy operate during this time? Right. So I think your little brother might not be wrong completely <laughs> because when the Indonesian nationalist leader proclaimed independence, actually this country they were liberating was not yet born, right? It's still kind of like a, all these islands with a very uh, thin veneer of shared history, um, how, do, how do you bring them together as a nation? And that's the main challenge. And I think one of the main driving force of modern Indonesian history, right? How do you 
negotiate um, the interests of different ethnic group, political groups, while engineering, engineering a coherence among different segments of the society. So going back to the issue of ethnic Chinese and Indonesia, so just follow up with our previous discussion about these three key points, right? So we stop by 1965. Um, so the book actually, um, so for me, writing, the, I, I wrote my dissertation actually the, uh, the backwards. So I started with 1965. Um, and the question I have was actually the question that was repeatedly posed to me by uh, my informants or interviewees when I was conducting the field work. Uh, many of them are ethnic Chinese Indonesia. Um, and their question was that um, um, in this generation, basically, they um, grew up under the Soharta region. Um, some grew up under the Soharta regime. Some already came to age before that. And so Soharta regime instigated um, systematic government-led discrimination against the ethnic Chinese, right? So um, the ethnic Chinese had a specific destination on their national ID card. Uh, Chinese language education was banned. Chinese cultural festival celebrations were also banned. Um, so this policy was um, basically started around late 1960s and lasted until the downfall of Soharto around the Asian financial crisis in 1998, right? So um, the question became, right, these ethnic Chinese Indonesia asked me, so what have we done wrong, right? We've been told that um, this is a fitting retribution to um, the disloyalty of the ethnic Chinese, right? You, You guys are not really pledging loyalty, being faithful to the Indonesian nation. And beyond that, there is this implicit association between Chineseness and communism. So Soharto region's population, uh, propaganda goes that um, basically China engineered a communist coup d'etat in Indonesia, right? And the Chinese in Indonesia were implicated. And um, they were like ongoing dispute also about the Chinese experience in 1965, 1966, right? So um, the Cold War generation of journalism basically say this is a Chinese genocide. And um, um, later on, like uh, scholars such as Robert Cribb and Charles Cabos uh, contested that portrait. And now I think a new generation of scholarship show that um, of course, the majority of victims were targeted not because of their ethnicity, but because of their political affiliation with the Indonesian Communist Party. But ethnic Chinese, because of this racial category, they are more vulnerable to violence, to harassment, to imprisonment without legal process. Um, so also... I think 1965 was the starting point of this whole narrative of Chinese being dirty in Indonesian political context. So more recently, we see like uh, the imprisonment of Jakarta Governor Aho, who is ethnic Chinese and also Christian. There was mass protests against him and a blas- like a very controversial blasphemy charges. So we still see that kind of um, narrative playing out nowadays. Right, right. Um, and it's, yeah, I think that the highlighting that you do there of the entanglements or the, the kind of um, uh, substitutions of class and ethnicity or race one for the other over time are extremely revealing for a sort of broader um, uh, kind of studies of um, of ethnicity and, and 
race uh, on a wider international level. So I think I think that really speaks to that very well. Um, but um, you set us up pretty well there too to move into the beginning uh, first few chapters of the book in which you basically document the sort of struggle or the, the kind of tussle between the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party who were fighting the civil war for much of the early period uh, that this book covers. Um, and so, as you say, you have this curious uh, contrast between the Chinese in Indonesia at one point being identified as sort of merchants and uh, dominating the economy, and on the other hand, being associated as communists and, you know, spreading global revolution. This is a, you know, extremely uh, fertile and uh, and, and productive kind of um, uh, a minimal pair of, of contrast there, I think. So could you kind of give us a picture? It's actually the first sort of four chapters, I think, that treat these uh, these dynamics between nationalist and communist tendencies. Could you say how the uh, dynamics played out among the Indonesian com- uh, Chinese community? What was, uh, what, how did what was going on back in the Chinese mainland kind of ref- get reflected in this uh, distant uh, Southeast Asian? Uh, right. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So I think the, um, the competition between um, the Republic of China with its capital in Taipei and the People's Republic of China with its capital in Beijing is um, something that actually surprised me. So I didn't realize that was the domineering feature of the Chinese community in Indonesia before I went into the fieldwork. So just to provide some uh, background, so uh, in 1949, basically communists won the mainland and nationalist government uh, evacuated to Taiwan. And the nationalist government, interestingly, it has extensively uh, extensive system of penetrating and influencing and mobilizing um, the, the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia. Um, so, in my book, I actually told us kind of a uh, curious but interesting story of uh, Li Xing. So, this guy was born and raised in Java, and he later died in Java too, and he was conscripted to. Uh, underground like intelligence network led by uh, the Ch- notorious Chinese Nationalist Party Status Bureau, the Jintong. Um, he he was killed during the Japanese occupation, but um, his father wrote a petition to the Chinese uh, Nationalist Government Consul General in Indonesia, asking him to be recognized as um, a martyr of the Republic of China, not the Republic of Indonesia, although he basically was born, uh, raised, and later buried in Indonesia. So his short life really tell the extent to which um, the Chinese nationalist government invested in mobilizing overseas Chinese. So um, before 1949, right, so um, the Chinese nationalist government had formal diplomatic relations with Indonesia. Uh, it was able to negotiate with the Indonesian government through a formal diplomatic channel, whereas the Communist Party was just this oppositional party. Uh, it didn't have institutional support, so it had to rely more on the informal, the softer people-to-people network. So um, the way the vehicle through which the Chinese Communist Party spread its influence among the Chinese in Indonesia was mainly through a group of left-leaning uh, literatis or intellectuals 
um, like people like uh, Hu Yuzhi, which also appeared in your book. I didn't know he traveled. All the, yeah, he traveled all the way. Yeah, along the Trans-Siberian Railway. So after that, I guess after that trip to uh, Russia, he arrived in Southeast Asia, and together with him, the uh, the renowned poet uh, Yu Da Fu. And uh, of course, Baron, the first, who later became the first Chinese ambassador to Indonesia. So they, uh, many of them were either like um, dispatched by the party um, as kind of undercover agents to influence the diaspora, or they were just uh, seeking a refuge during the Japanese occupation. And they formed really extensive uh, personal connection with the local Chinese uh, like Chinese youth, and particularly on the island of Sumatra. So after 1949, the position of the commons and the nationalist shift, right, is kind of reversal. So now uh, the government of Indonesia recognized uh, the People's Republic China, right? So the Republic of China, Taipei, lost its formal diplomatic uh, representation. But um, interestingly, in the shadow of the Cold War, um, the Indonesian, especially the Islamic forces, the right-wing forces, were still very comprehensive about this, like, this shadow of Red China. So um, they allowed the Chinese Nationalist Party organizations to operate, um, to continue to operate in Indonesia as a counterbalance to um, so-called communist China. So we see this kind of um, uh, a backhanded diplomacy, backdoor diplomacy, and kind of also competition on the civic level, right? So this uh, blue versus red, so Taipei versus Beijing competition for leadership, whether it's Chinese civil societies or Chinese language schools or Chinese language media newspapers, that was a dominant feature. Um, of the diasporic society in the 1950s. Um, And you you cover really well, I think, the kind of competing efforts of the different sides to bring people in. And and also, you know, really uh, can't be stressed enough the kind of incredible complexity on the ground of people uh, speaking different languages and with differing extents of uh, either Indonesian or sort of old Chinese or new Chinese identification um, and all of the questions over citizenship and uh, loyalty and identity that this throws up, um, of course, uh, well before this uh, more, I guess, forceful uh, Suharto era that you uh, highlighted uh, just a few minutes ago. But, um, you know, I think uh, you navigate this um, tremendously well. Um, but one person who I think acts as a sort of focal point for crystallizing a lot of this complexity is this uh, guy, Baren, the, the first uh, Chinese PRC ambassador to Indonesia, who you mentioned earlier too. Um, so could you just uh, give us a picture of his his biography, his kind of uh, hopping between the two locations and um, what it is that his uh, experiences say more generally about this era and, and indeed Cold War history? Right. So Byron, uh, he's on the cover of my book. Uh, so Byron is his pen name, which means common man. He's like, I guess, legal name is Wang Renshu. So he's uh, quite a recognized uh, like literary figure in Shanghai. He edited uh, the, well, I think he edited uh, the complete work series of Lu Xun. 
So between 1942 and 1947, he lived in North Sumatra. And um, he is a true Marxist, I would say, very romantic. Um, so during his stay in Sumatra, he forged really close ties with the local ethnic Chinese youth. So he, I used to joke like he's like Bernie Sanders. He's very popular among young people because of his like very like leftist uh, belief and some somehow also very um, promoting this idea that you know racial divisions can always be overcome by class solidarity. So he really asked the young people in North Sumatra translate. Um, all these like uh, progressive magazines they were reading into Bahasa Indonesia urged them to talk to the so-called indigenous communities. And um, he tried to reach out to actually the local branch of the Indonesian Communist Party, but without much success. And um, he is a literary figure and he wrote the Song of Indonesia. So basically, singing praises for this newborn republic of Indonesia. And he very much uh, like opposed the Chinese nationalist government's policy. So what did he oppose most? That is, uh, the nationalist government actually insisted of, uh, the right of blood nationality decree, which suggests that, you know, any all the children of Chinese citizens will be Chinese citizens no matter where they were born, right? And Barron think the best solution will be um, um, for the Chinese to integrate or assimilate to the Indonesian nation, to embrace um, the newborn Indonesian nation, and especially for the mid-class Chinese business, businessmen to donate their property to the Indonesian nation. And uh, he also famously wrote this play. It's called The Temple of Five Ancestors. So it's based on a real event, uh, but he, of course, romanticized it. So it's about like a, a laborer's revolt against uh, a Dutch plant, a plantation owner. And uh, he basically framed it as a case in which you know, um, whether it's the Dayak, the Gayuks, all the Malays, all the ethnic groups can join hands, right, for the liberation of the proletarian. And, but after he, uh, so he was expelled by the Dutch because of his political activism. He returned as the first ambassador, but he was sacked before his term ended. And the reason was that he allowed one of the main, um, like newspaper, uh, I think journalist Wang Jiuan, he's a left-wing journalist, um, to seek refuge in the Chinese embassy in Jakarta uh, during uh, a purge by the Indonesian government, but without seeking approval from Beijing. So that constitutes in Indonesia as intervention in Indonesian domestic politics. And, um, and he, in his self-reflection, he actually uh, confess that it's a cardinal thing as an ambassador that he still view um, his most important task as promoting war revolution, especially through the youth. And um, during the Cultural Revolution, he actually revised the play Temple of Five Ancestors. He added lots of Cultural Revolution scenes, like all the uh, laborers were reciting Mao's Little Red Book. And he passed away very tragically um, in his uh, hometown in rural Zhejiang. And in his view, he actually asked his family to spread half of his ashes 
to the sea so that his spirits could right, come back. Right. To yeah. Well, Asia. I think uh, his biography and the way it's kind of woven in and out of uh, a lot of the other stories that he tell is a, a real kind of uh, captivating thread that uh, is there in the book as a whole. Um, but moving on, we've uh, kind of looked a bit there at uh, the kind of Chinese angle, I guess, on how uh, approaches to Indonesia were made during this uh, this period. But how were they um, received, I guess, is the, the natural next question. And the next couple of chapters uh, deal with this, uh, the, the kind of idea of there being a Chinese problem, uh, in quotation marks, uh, as perceived by local Pribumi uh, Indonesian population. Um, so um, how did, uh, with all of this kind of, all of these machinations, uh, some, at times from Beijing, at times from Taipei, at times from, you know, just local activities uh, such as Bahrain, perhaps as a kind of more organic, on the ground kind of activist? Um, what were the local uh, Indonesian sort of uh, reception of, of, of all of this and how did attitudes towards the Chinese evolve? Right. I think um, China, the Chinese, the so-called Chinese problem in the context of Cold War Indonesia, it's kind of an umbrella, right? I, I think at least um, first and foremost is a reflection of the internal political struggle between the left and the right in Indonesia. So in other words, the Chinese problem, the ethnic Chinese were kind of hijacked by uh, the competing uh, political actors in Indonesia. So one uh, in chapter six of my book, I actually uh, focus on the presidential decree number 10. So that was issued um, in 1959. Basically, it uh, announced that all the Chinese peddlers in rural Indonesia, their license are go- going to be canceled. And the Prebumi, the so-called indigenous, indigenous Indonesians were allowed or uh, authorized to take over their business. So why was this launched? So uh, in my book, I kind of try to show um, this was used by the right wing, the Islamic parties or the Indonesian army to attack the Indonesian Communist Party. So in other words, there is kind of a conflation of ethnic Chinese and the People's Republic of China and the Indonesian Communist Party. And um, in a sense, so the Chinese Indonesia, although many of them live in poverty or in really like making their life based on really modest means, they were all regarded as capitalists, right? So they're, they're regarded as this hito, a homogeneous whole and representing the um, capitalist class. And um, even the Indonesian Communist Party, they recognize this. So their um, attitude is basically they, they spilled out very clearly that the right-wing forces are actually using this attack against ethnic Chinese as attack against the Communist Party because it's rapid rise in the Indonesian political scene and its close relationship with Sokarno kind of alarmed the right-wing uh, forces uh, for example, the army and the Islamic groups. And secondly, I think um, the Chinese problem also reflects the tension um, or the domestic disagreement over Indonesia's foreign policy, right? So um, if we see uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, right, when China and Indonesia enjoy good relationship, um, oh, sorry, when China and Indonesia like had like um, had tumultuous relationship. There, 
the Chinese Indonesia became targets of attack. But when the two countries were closed, uh, it created a new kind of um, electric atmosphere in which this uh, long-going ethnic stereotype can still be exploited by some political forces. And um, I think certainly it also represents Indonesia as a newly established, vastly diverse nation, is anxiety over the borderlands, right? So uh, one case I focus is the case of West Kalimantan. Um, so there, in West Kalimantan, there is establishment of Chinese mining companies uh, known to the Dutch as the Kongsis. So they are kind of int- entirely autonomous and uh, it had control over Chinese laborers and as well as the indigenous population. So um, I wrote um, also in the chapter, I discovered basically from the Indonesian National Archives that um, the attorney general were basically writing, oh, the officials we dispatched to West Kalimantan from Java, they couldn't understand what is really going on right they couldn't read chinese uh there is no signifier of indonesian na- uh, national who they even recommend we should just ship tons of uh indonesian national flag and pictures of sokanara hand it everywhere right um so i think at least um you know the the chinese problem is this umbrella concept that encompass you know anxiety is about where domestic politics going in indonesia uh where which directions foreign policy is going and how to control this diverse and right. vast no, I think territory. That, uh, that is a really kind of uh, contemporary as well, something that has a very contemporary resonance. Um, you look at, uh, for example, how uh, ordinary populations in, uh, I don't know, in the UK or in the United States or elsewhere today look at places like Russia and China and the like. It's often a kind of projection of uh, internal and domestic anxieties and, and, and problems. And God knows that both countries exactly, have, yeah. have a Projection lot of those. Of yeah, exactly. Advice. So, um, exactly. yeah, I think uh, you trace that very well. And I think it uh, kind of accounts in part for why it is that, as you also sort of document, it was it was very difficult for a lot of this period to uh, uh, instill a sense of class solidarity that transcended ethnic difference as uh, as Bahrain perhaps aspired to but you know it didn't it didn't quite work out um as I think many uh, romantic uh, as you put it idealistic Marxists might have hoped um but moving on um to this period which as you say is a sort of apogee of the the book's arc uh, this uh, period around uh, the events of 1965 the September the 30th movement um and this era of a very new kind of revolution in both uh, Indonesia and in the People's Republic of China, uh, namely the trans uh, sort of uh, movement to the Suharto regime and the Cultural Revolution in China, of course. Um, so how did the onset of both of these very sort of turmoil-filled periods in both countries um, affect the, uh, the kind of uh, experiences of, of, of the diaspora and uh, how did it confront them with, with new problems? Right. So, um, so in chapter seven to nine, in my book, I kind of describe how there is a synchronized um, rise of both culture onset of cultural revolution in China and the rise of Suharto regime in Indonesia. And this kind of tumultuous rupture of Sino-Indonesian relations 
kind of feed into propaganda and domestic mobilization in both countries, right? So in China, it was using domestic propaganda uh, kind of to kind of warm up, the, if you could use that word, to the domestic uh, audience, right, to for mass mobilization for the Cultural Revolution in Indonesia, the attacks on Chinese embassy, consular news agency uh, play a very important role in legitimizing the rule of Soharto. So I just talk a little bit how like Beijing um, used um, the Sino-Indonesian diplomatic rupture as a kind of uh, domestic mobilization tool. So um, I highlight earlier, like in 1955, um, at the time China was pursuing a kind of peaceful uh, approach in foreign relations. It was seeking friends, seeking a peaceful accommodation. But um, in 1965, Chinese diplomacy derailed from that pause. So basically, it that radicalization led to China's reckless handling of uh, bilateral relations with Indonesia. So one person that dramatized this, uh, you know, Sino-Indonesia diplomatic rupture was uh, Yao Dongshan. Uh, those familiar with cultural revolution history might be familiar with image in which he was uh, holding Mao in one arm and holding Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, in another arm. So he's like a cultural revolution uh, media star, influencer. So he was he was sent to Indonesia as the tragedy fair, and he violated diplomatic protocol by uh, directly arguing and provoking uh, the Indonesian army. Um, and but back home, when he was expelled. And back home, when he arrived in Beijing, he was welcomed as a rap diplomatic fighter. And also, Radio Beijing just keep just kept blasting uh, criticism against Soharto. And um, so, I mentioned earlier the Chinese embassy in Jakarta was under various rounds of attacks. So, in retaliation, the Red Guards actually raided and ransacked the Indonesian embassy in Beijing. Right. So this, um, there's all these um, drama going on, kind of formulated this narrative that you know China is under crisis. There is this anti-China, anti-Chinese, um, evil winged instigated by the Western imperialists going on around the world. So heighten this sense of crisis and help Mao to you know add momentum. For the Cultural Revolution. I see. Yeah. Well, it's it's a yeah a particularly dramatic period um, from the from the Chinese side there uh, for sure, as you've outlined. Um, and this is also a time when China, uh, with the Sino-Soviet split being concurrent with the uh, Cultural Revolution, is seeking a kind of growing role as a purported leader in international socialist affairs. So, was it the case that during this era, China or did Beijing kind of increase its agitation on the ground in Indonesia? Was there actually the, uh, an increase in the level of uh, attempts to encourage so- socialist uh, and, and Chinese loyal socialist movements in Indonesia, as you know, as sort of had been alleged in that early, earlier period when there was a kind of a massacre and so on? Was that actually going on? Right, right, right. That's a very interesting question, I guess. 
um, one could possibly argue that so um, there is a parallel radicalization of both Chinese and Indonesian foreign policy in the early 1960s, right? So China and Indonesia both like superstars at Bandung, but later on, when they try to organize a second Bandung in 1965, it failed spectacularly. And it's largely because they were pursuing kind of a radical brand of anti-imperialism. They want to fight both the Soviet Union and the United States at the same time, right? So no other countries want to follow them. So they're basically isolated. And then the question goes, right? So things... Indonesia is such a luring potential partner for China. Would China actually sponsor a communist coup d'etat in Indonesia, right? Um, so that's the million-dollar question. Like, did China really engineer the coup? Uh, my answer is no, uh, based on the following reason. First of all, um, one key document I review in the book is uh, the dialogue between Aidit, the Indonesian Communist Party leader, and Mao Zedong uh, is in August 1965, so shortly before the September 30th movement. And at the time, Sokarno, uh, he's, not, he's not really well. He was uh, sick, and there was international speculation that he might die soon, and that might cause instability on the Indonesian political scene. So Mao asked him, Mao asked Aidit, what are we going to do? And I did lay out this plan, uh, which is very sophisticated um, and highly resemble what exactly happened on October 1st, 1965. So he said, uh, we're not going to do the Chinese way of armed uprising or the rural, uh, was that cert- the, uh, the rural, rural villages around the city. So we're not going to do that. We're going to set up a revolutionary committee consisted of both uh, the right, the middle, and the left, so that we will confuse the enemy. If we show our red flag right away, uh, the enemies can attack us very easily. So I guess in terms of design, this doesn't sound very Chinese, right? And another, uh, I, another fact is that in terms of intention, right, it doesn't really serve Beijing any good to stage a coup d'etat against Sokarno, right? Sokarno is pursuing this radical leftist line. His best friends beside China were like North Vietnam, North Korea, right? And he had a cozy relationship with the Indonesian Communist Party. So it would serve China's interest more if the alliance between the Indonesian Communist Party and Sokarno continue on, right? And last but not least, most importantly, if you look at the amount of military aid China just lagged far, far behind the Soviet Union and the United States. So in other words, China didn't have that capacity to project its military power to, to Indonesia or to directly intervene in Indonesia. Um, so that's, <laughs> I guess that's the broader answer. But on, on the diplomatic level, right? On the, on, like, on the level of like human stories, the Asperger life, um, sure, I mean, the, the momentum of the mass mobilization of the pro-Beijing Chinese were actually just gone out of control of Beijing. So although the Chinese government was happy to see that, you know, the pro-Beijing Chinese were gaining the upper hand against the pro-Taipei Chinese, it definitely served China's interest. But the degree of their activism actually exceeded the level Beijing regarded as beneficial to its diplomacy. Mm-hmm. In right, Indonesia. and I think, and especially 
That's exactly yeah, the kind of thing that we miss mm. uh, in oh. focusing only on the diplomatic kind of interaction between the capital cities and the and the sort of uh, yeah global scale. I mean, you do tell the stories of the the leaders flying around the world and this kind of ridiculous circus, uh, you know, trying to stage a second London conference and you know, kind of grabbing each other at random meetings in other locations across the uh, the world in North Africa and so on. Uh, of course, that's all important stuff, but what's going on on the ground and, and whether or not it exceeds the limits of what anyone is trying to uh, encourage uh, through active diplomacy is, is such an important angle. And throughout here, you know, we see the, the local um, population of Chinese people in Indonesia being sort of pulled from pillar to post and engaging in all kinds of different, more organic projects. And, and, and you chart that just as well as you document the uh, uh, kind of top level diplomatic affairs. Um, and so moving on, I guess, um, it, it, it in some ways seems that, you know, at least as I was reading it, that one of the most fascinating and really um, also kind of uh, uh, tragic comic, if you will, uh, parts of the story was saved right uh, to the end here, namely the experiences of um, the Indonesian Chinese who returned. And returned is itself a problematic notion when you consider that some of those who were going to China from Indonesia at the time were descendants of people who'd been in China, in Indonesia for many, many generations and or, or at least had, or had come from you know a different country historically even if they'd come from the same village uh, now the prc was a different place from whatever had been there before so this idea is is a complex one but um of course their experiences were you know just as uh, kind of diverse and uh, and rich and colorful as all of those you document throughout the book so could you say a little bit about how they kind of responded or what kind of uh, examples you brought out here of of the response to the new socialist homeland among these returnee uh, Indonesian Chinese. Right, right. So, um, so this is actually part of the work I um, I probably enjoyed the most. Uh, I loved the entire field work as well. So, was it the five what uh, what is called overseas Chinese farms uh, in the three thousand. Uh, coastal provinces of Guangdong, Fujian, and Hainan. And so on these farms were basically most of the um, Chinese Indonesian were relocated, right? So what is an overseas Chinese farm? It's basically virgin land given to those who, quote-unquote, return to China for them to build their life anew, right? And as you mentioned, it's kind of paradox because um, – the Chinese in Indonesia, they were ethnic minority and they were kind of on the margins of Indonesian society. But once back in the PRC, they were again on the margins of the society and um, they were again regarded as disloyal to the government. And uh, whereas in Indonesia, the label that separated them from the majority is this label being Chinese, right? And in Back in China, it's like all these habits, like, for example, their habits of taking daily shower label as brazis or capitalists, their love for music, right? Playing guitar or wearing, like, white-cut jeans or regarded as hooliganism. Um, and all these political labels were very confusing to them. So um, once arrived in China, their destiny were basically very diverse. So only a minority of them were able to find jobs in the cities. But um, 
ironically, actually, most of them were city dollars back in Indonesia. So most of them had to go to the countryside and to start their life as uh, farmers and peasants. And the state attitude toward them is also very complex. So on the one hand, uh, the overseas Chinese is very important resource for socialist China for one thing to gain uh, foreign currency, right, foreign exchange through the overseas Chinese remittance network. Another thing is to gain access to strategic goods such as rubber, because um, in 1950, China was basically um, under the U.S. imposed embargo, right? Um, so I encounter fascinating stories such as um, how the um, ethnic Chinese from Indonesia, the students who uh, went to China for higher education, they actually helped to smuggle the seeds and rubber seeds um, to, to Hainan. So the island on which now is the major uh, producer of rubber in China. And, um, but at the same time, right, um, for them to learn this language, new language of socialism was very difficult and uh, adapting to the socialist system was very confusing. Like the whole plan economy, command economy, was very confusing for them. They don't know how to navigate through all these certificates, how to do purchase, and they don't understand why they have to uh, conduct criticism and self-criticism. And they divide lots of these strategies of everyday resistance to quote James Scott's word. And they have all these like uh, songs about it, uh, kind of sarcastically criticizing the motherland, saying like, oh, you know, the motherland's graze three cabbages a day. Like they only have cabbages to eat. Um, and one of my interviews showed me this uh, photo in which uh, they have this, uh, what they call like a pool, pool boys club. Um, um, I couldn't show the photo on, on the post podcast. And basically, so they're wearing all these like very uh, flashy white shirts and uh, Western style jeans. And, uh, and they have a, a blackboard on which they write like, oh, this boy has no time, no money, and no love. Um, right, right. Yeah. In English, right? In English, exactly. In yeah. English. This, this photo I found completely unbelievable. It's in the book. and it, I mean, it kind of, it, it, at least from a sort of northern Chinese perspective, perhaps, it, it, it's unbelievable that that was during the Cultural Revolution because it kind of looks like the 60s anywhere, you know, or at least the 60s that was going on in London or, you know, uh, very far from, from Mao era China. Um, and, you know, they've yeah, got kind of these hairstyles and these sort of, uh, you know, kind of cool clothes. And yeah, it's a, it's a it, it incredible. It does look like a Beatles-ish, right? <laughs> that, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It really has that, that kind of vibe about it. Um, but I, I'm sort of, you know, I was reminded uh, in your description of these returnees and, and their sort of use, I guess, to the new socialist state. Uh, in part of uh, the uh, Zainichi Koreans who were induced to return to North Korea, uh, also not during a similar period during the Cold War and were obviously very useful for that uh, North Korean government for getting foreign currency and also lots of nice luxury items from Japan and so on. Of course, they ultimately fared far worse uh, than this uh, Chinese community. So um, one kind of concluding point that you make is, the contribution of some of these returnees to China's ultimate opening up a couple of decades later that I began my introduction with. So what was their sort of role in 
shaping the path of uh, new China, which in many ways was born down in the far south uh, where these some of these farms were. Right. So on the comparative uh, diaspora point, I think it's quite striking that North Korea, um, so the Zainichi in Japan who repatriated to North Korea, as well as Chinese Indonesia who kind of quote-unquote repatriated to socialist China, I think are the two only cases during the Cold War in which people migrated from the socialist camp, uh, from the capitalist camp to the socialist camp. So majority of our like migration were in the opposite direction, right? So in terms of the uh, Chinese Indonesians' contribution to China's reform and opening, quite interestingly, um, the, the, the location of the overseas Chinese farms on the coastal southern part of China, that's also the forefront of China's reform opening. Right? So early stage of reform opening rely heavily upon the revival of this overseas Chinese remittance and investment network, right, from one thing. And not to speak like, uh, not, not, to, not to talk about the fact that, uh, for example, today, <laughs> anecdotally, um, the Indonesian culture of some of the farm became a tourist attraction, and uh, tropical produce such as coffee, pepper, and coconuts um, became part of the ecological landscape and agriculture economy of, um, for example, of Hainan. So in other words, uh, these Cold War migrants, their behavior, their practices kind of subverted or transcended the Cold War. And um, in terms of, I think, the broader story I was trying to tell, right, going back to the story of Barron, I think he embodies this entanglement of diaspora and diplomacy, right? So the question ultimately I want to ask in this book is that how countries such as Indonesia and China, which were formerly colonized, um, how do they interact with each other when you know, the citizenship was contested and political loyalty was very, very uh, fluid and identity was malleable. And um, in your case, right, you studied China and Russia and there was a physical boundary, borderland or boundary. But in the case of China and Indonesia, there's no geographic boundary, but there is kind of the existence of the ethnic Chinese kind of give rise to a social frontier that can be traversed maybe more easily and subconsciously in a way. So, so ultimately, I hope the, the book tells the story when, you know, when kind of diplomacy inevitably intersect with domestic issues of um, ethnic minority integration and class issues. Yeah, well, I think it absolutely does. And uh, yeah, I, I, I got a huge amount out of uh, the book on both counts. I think uh, the story you mentioned there of um, the combined contribution of the overseas Chinese returnees to both the grand scale uh, reform and, and opening periods within China and to the local ecology where they're growing coconuts and so on is a, is a good uh, metaphor for the sort of dual tracks that the book, I think, so elegantly interweaves as a whole. Um, but uh, Talma, thank you so much for uh, discussing all of this uh, today with us. I mean, it's been a really fascinating interview. Um, before we let you go, uh, perhaps I'll just ask our traditional final question, which is, uh, what is it you're working on now? Where has uh, your trajectory taken you since uh, the completion of this book? 
Right. So I'm starting a new project on Shenzhen. So I grew up in Shenzhen in a migrant family, and I'm trying to use the story of Shenzhen to tell uh, the broader trajectory of China's reform and opening. So kind of a follow-up with the story of the return, the so-called returned overseas Chinese from Indonesia. Uh, I guess the theme of migration is still there. Um, and uh, the, at, at right now, I'm focusing the early period um, under socialism. So I'm looking at illegal migration from uh, Shenzhen to Hong Kong in the 1960s. And I'm uh, trying to review some kind of mini reform efforts uh, during the height of socialism. So there were experiments with market mechanism uh, all the way back actually, in mm. the 1960s. Mm, mm, mm. Well, that, that'll be an equally, I'm sure, excellent contribution to our sort of more complica- complicated and uh, nuanced understanding of this era of extremes and of, you know, kind of categorical declarations of, of political uh, movements and so on to see what's going on on the ground and how it's a lot more complicated. It's an incredibly valuable effort. So, yeah, that'll be wonderful to read as well. Um, well, Tamar, thank you so much uh, for appearing on the show today. It was uh, really great talking to you. Thank you, Ed. Such a great pleasure talking to you. Well, and listeners, uh, thank you as well for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. If you've made it this far, uh, it's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.